Let's uh, go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and all the way through chapter 7. I'm only going to read the first or the last part of chapter 6. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth." Make for yourselves an ark, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and complete it to one cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the, of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them." Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Let's pray. Our Father and Sovereign Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, and amen. You can be seated. Last week, we saw the events leading up to the call of Noah, namely the proliferation of evil, thanks to the Sethites and Cainites who opted for disobedience rather than faithfulness to Yahweh. Remember that at the end of chapter 4, specifically verse 26, you, may, you can look there if you like, we find that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, of course, the covenant name of God. Men began at that point to call upon the name of Yahweh. So Seth's line was fairly stable at this point. However, as the narrative continues, we see that his descendants apostatized from the faith 
intermarried with the wicked Cainites and evil began to multiply on the face of the earth. Uh, we see that penchant for the Israelites to want to take wives from foreign nations in places like Judges and uh, even during the kingdom. There were a whole lot of things that they were not supposed to do and that was one of them. You're not to marry outside the faith, essentially. Now rather than having the best of times, it was simply the worst of times here. At this point, God decides in response to man's wickedness to pour out his wrath against all of humanity with the exception of one particular family. Noah, having received the grace of God, now had a calling. Noah had a calling, Operation Save the World. That was his task. God decides on his own righteous volition to uncreate the earth, effectively returning it back to the chaotic condition we saw all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2. Now, this worldwide judgment, indeed, it was not a local flood, but a worldwide flood. It was a worldwide judgment, and it was a catastrophic judgment. The flood, like all of God's judgments during the economy of the covenant of grace, is meant to be a judgment against the wicked. God's judgment is to be a judgment against the wicked, but it's also to be salvation for the righteous. It's meant to be judgment against the wicked, salvation for the righteous. The global flood removed the evil. That was the point of it. The, the evil is proliferating on the earth. It is ubiquitous. Everybody's sinning. It's a terrible condition. God is going to remove the evil, effectively wiping it off the face of the earth. And in the same action, though, God brought forth one single family, one single family to demonstrate his sovereign new creation plan of redemption. The ark, as we'll see, is the chosen vessel. It's the vessel chosen by God in order to deliver his people from the evil one. And that's how we should view the ark story here. It's a rescue operation. It's the salvation of the planet, which includes, again, judgment against evil. And for us today, Jesus is our ark. Jesus is the ark. He is the one who takes us to salvation. And that's the main theme of our passage here. Judgment against evil, deliverance of redemption for the righteous. So let's summarize our passage here. We'll start there in, Gal uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 6. The, the records regarding Noah began, and they begin with a strong statement here in verse 9. Notice here in verse 9, Noah was a righteous, blameless man. Uh, huge contrast here. Noah is righteous and blameless. He is a just man. The rest of the world is evil. And meaning, when we read a verse like this, Noah exercised sound judgment in all of his dealings with full integrity of heart. That's the type of man who Noah really was. He loved God's law, which meant that he was a just man. He was a principled man. Um, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe in God's law and it's important. It's another thing to have the wisdom to apply it to everything in your life. Self-discipline, self-government, all the way across the board. So Noah was righteous, he was blameless, he was principled. He wasn't prone to fakery, he wasn't prone to partiality or people-pleasing, uh, any of those categories. He was a disciplined, principled man, a just man. The law was his tool for dominion. The law of God is man's tool for dominion, and it starts with having dominion over yourself, as Noah exhibits for us. Now, no doubt, for Noah, he meditated on it day and night, Psalm 119.97. We should meditate on God's law day and night. 
and Noah's, because of that, Noah's ultimate aim was to please God. That was his reason for existence. I'm going to please God, and I'm going to live like that's the case. And just like his ancestor Enoch, Noah walked with God. The same thing said of Enoch here is now said of Noah. Noah walked with God. God was gracious. That was the end there of, or in verse 8 of chapter 6. Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah stumbled upon the grace of God, essentially. Um, but God was gracious to Noah, no doubt, giving him three children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's in verse 10. But rather than, strike, rather than taking him straight to heaven, like God had done to Enoch, Noah would have a calling for the earth. So walking with God, Enoch was taken to heaven. He, he just simply wasn't anymore. Um, Noah walks with God too, but he acts something different. He has a calling for the earth. Remember how I described um, Cain and Abel. Cain was a man of the earth. Abel was a man of heaven. There's this contrast of, of callings for humans, humanity, um, work the ground, serve heaven. And those are sort of like a reciprocal relationship that you can have. Um, but same thing here with Enoch and Noah. Enoch was a man of heaven. Noah was a man of the ground. He had a calling for the earth. And verses 11 through 12, we have a recapitulation of the first part of the chapter. When you start in chapter 6, you see just how terrible things are. Uh, the, the thoughts and intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. But here in verse 11, we see that uh, it says this, Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. In other words... The seed of the serpent was winning the war against the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent, talked about in Genesis 3, was winning the war against the seed of the woman, at least we assume for now. God comes to Noah, lamenting the condition of mankind. This is a lament from God himself. In verse 13, he states that the earth is filled with violence, and I'm about to destroy them with the earth, he says. Amazing language. This is God's judgment against the world. I see the violence. I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to destroy them using the earth, which God has done in several instances, Korah's rebellion being one of them. Now, there is a wordplay here in Hebrew regarding the word corrupt um, that doesn't always come out in the English, but it does in Hebrew. The, the, the earth is said to be corrupted before God because men had corrupted it. And in fact, in the LSB, that word is used, corrupt, there. So the humans have corrupted the earth, and thus, as a response to that, God would destroy them. Now, that, that's a word play there. In other words, God would cause corruption against humans and against the earth. This is an eye for an eye, the lex talionis. Um, they have corrupted the earth. God will corrupt them with the earth. That's the word play here. In verses 14 through 22, God gives Noah specific instructions for building the ark. And kids, this is where things get really exciting. This giant ark is going to be built. Three times we find in the text, Yahweh spoke to Noah, but not once did Noah reply. That's interesting. Not once did Noah say anything. He didn't even say, yeah, okay, great, sounds good. And he didn't ask any questions. I think we're supposed, to, I take this to mean that Noah, being the blameless, righteous, and just man that he was, he simply carried out God's commands, no questions asked. 
That's how righteous he was. When God says, do this thing, that even though it seems totally absurd, he does it. Uh, He doesn't mouth back to God. He doesn't even ask for directions. Of course, God tells him what to do, and he gives him the instructions, but that's how blameless Noah is. Now, the ark itself was an impressively large structure made out of gopher wood, coming in at around 450 to 510 feet long. Uh, the, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, they go with the 510 feet. It all depends on how you measure a cubit, and usually that's from elbow to hand here. Now, for some of us, we have longer cubits. <laughs> so if you think about, you know, I don't know, maybe Noah was like six foot three, 250 pounds, shredded. You know, maybe he worked out, and he had long cubits. But that's the general range, um, 450 feet to 510 feet long. Um, as far as width goes, 75 to 85 feet wide, and as far as height goes, we're 45 to 51 feet high. So you can kind of measure that. And by the way, when you go, and if you get a chance to go and you see it, it's an impressively large structure. It's very imposing. You kind of walk up, wow, that's really big. It is big. It's, it's supposed to be. It's, it's weight, it probably weighed roughly 43,000 tons. Now that's an estimate. We don't know for sure, but that's That's a lot. Um, The ark wasn't made for steering. There was no steering wheel, sort of captain of the ship thing here. Um, None of that was going on. It was an ark, not a boat. The model ratio frame of it was six to one. So it was made for floating. That was the point of the ark. It wasn't a ship to get across to another continent. It was simply for floating, and it needed to be that way. So we call it an ark, not a boat, for that very reason. And by the way, in Exodus 2, curiously enough, we see baby Moses in an ark. There's a connection to be made there. Not a boat, an ark. Same, same Hebrew word there. Coating it with pitch required resin from pine trees, presumably. Um, boiled in large pots. They would have had to may, make a lot of pitch to coat it on the outside and the inside. But that's probably how they did it. They took pine from, uh, resin from pine trees. Sometimes you could put powdered charcoal or other types of components into it. We don't know exactly how Moses waterproofed the vessel, but we we know he did. And God gave him the provisions to do so. At any rate, the ark had a window and a door with three impressive decks. Three decks to go on. And what would be stored inside? Well, Noah, of course, and his family, his wife, his three sons, their, their wives... There was to be two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal and seven pairs of some other kinds. And those were specified to be clean animals because sacrifices were to be made on the ark. Um, And that we learn that in in the early parts of chapter 7 there. When you go into the ark encounter in Kentucky, you go in and one of the first things you you see is Noah. There's like an altar and his family are there worshiping and he's praying. And it kind of sets the tone for what, what was going on in the ark. A lot of work, no doubt but a lot of prayers too. Um, And God made provision for them to offer sacrifices while they were on the ark. So that's why there are certain animals categorized that way. Also, Noah was to take food for themselves and the animals. We see that in verse 21. They were to have provisions for themselves, and then they needed to feed these animals, so they would have had to take, take plenty of food for them as well. And a quick note about species and kinds, when we classify this, this is important to to realize because skeptics get this confused and and we have this whole evolution debate that unfolds. 
There is an estimated 1.8 million documented species in the world. Documented species, okay? And I just read about another giant spider that was discovered in Australia like a couple weeks ago. Trap door, I think it was called, spider. Don't Google it, you'll be horrified. <laughs> um, somehow it, it showed up on Instagram. I didn't ask for that. I had to pray it away. <laughs> so 1.8 documented species in the world. Now, over 98% are fish, um, invertebrates, and non-animals. You think of plants and bacterias. Now, what this means is that there, there are less than 34,000 species of known land-dependent vertebrates in the world today. So do some math to get, give you an idea here. And in short, the ark probably held approximately 1,398 animals inside. That's all they needed. Just under 1,400. Male and female, um, small, young, carefully organized, because the Bible says that there were kinds of animals put in the ark. So you have different kinds. In that book I recommended, you, you can read all about that. But... Um, I take it to mean baby dinosaurs as well, to some degree. Because a lot of animals that people generally, the public, think, oh, that's a dinosaur. Well, dinosaurs, there's hip structure, there's things for classification that we just don't get because we live in a fantasy world of Jurassic Park and all of that. Um, but there would have been certain kinds that would have been included as well. So how many kinds? Fewer than 1,400, just to give you an idea. Now, miraculously, God brought the animals to Noah. Animals have instinctual behaviors, and you can see if, you know, if a tsunami is coming or there's some sort of massive earthquake or whatever, you can tell animals respond, and you, know, you can see them flying in a certain direction, and maybe you should go with them, you know, that sort of thing. But they have an instinct, uh, this sensorial perception. I'll talk about that later. And God, no doubt, used it to direct them to Noah. And Noah, of course, and his family organized them and put them on the ark in certain places, probably in certain wooden cages of sorts to keep them separate. All sorts of, of, of a process was required here. And they had to feed and water these animals on the ark for a year. They also had to take care of their droppings. The system was a well-oiled machine pun intended, because it's definitely not a machine, but the process had to have been. Um, it's phenomenal what you can see when you go and visit the one in Kentucky. It's just, a, it's amazing to see and sort of take in, wow, this is like how it could have been done. And it's, it's remarkable. It's just, it's really cool. Now, the ark would have had a moon pool for airflow with air vents at the top in order to keep the air flowing. It's possible that the ark would have collected rainwater from the top while it was raining and filtering it into the hatch, somehow distributing it to the various decks for the animals to consume. Lighting was probably artificial, certainly candles, different types of things. But we know from chapter 8, verse 13, it's probable that the ark had huge, very large hatches at the top that could have been opened once the rain stopped, and then light could have come in from there. Now, at this point, we have to keep in mind that rain had not yet occurred. Noah built a large ark in the middle of dry ground. How would he get it to the ocean, right? That's kind of what we would think. Well, nonsense. Verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. What was Noah thinking? 
and I got this from Van Til. He said, no, you don't get the, the ark to the ocean. Noah's thinking, well, God's going to bring the ocean to the boat. That's a faith thing. Now, note in verse 18, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So God, God's covenant arrangement is unilateral, meaning that God imposed it on Noah by grace. God chose him, elected him, brought him into this calling, and that was all of grace. And this aspect, by the way, of co the covenant of grace, we're going to see in detail in a few weeks when we get back to our series here um, after Resurrection Sunday. Now, chapter 7, not going to go into the whole thing, but chapter 7 tells us that Yahweh told Noah to enter the ark. Verse 1, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. Out of the millions of people on the earth, everybody's doing wickedness. They're, they're on the wickedness train, and Noah is not, and only he is righteous. Now, based on ages and some math, uh, we have to math sometimes, right? It probably took Noah 20 to 40 years to build the ark, roughly. But the time had come. The time was, was now. The ark is complete. God is going to blot out the living things on the earth, sending rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, verse 6, we know that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. He was 600 years old. Um, everything was set. The water came. Verse 11, the fountains of the great deep split open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Now, this happened in the second month on the 17th day of the month, which we don't know exactly when that was. It was possible that it was in the fall, October, November. Um, it depends on if we're using the Hebrew calendar, which is a lunar calendar, or if the date is in reference to Moses being 600 years old. We're not entirely sure. But we find here that Genesis 1 and 2 is now being reversed. If you remember in Genesis 1, the separation of the land and the water, that is now being undone with a massive volcanic activity. When, when, the, when the Bible talks about the fountains of the deep coming up from the ground, kids, you should know, massive eruptions, geysers that were probably miles long, a massive, massive convulsion for the earth. That is how God flooded it. Um, water coming from the sky, water coming up from the ground, just total destruction. That's how we read this passage. The world would be washed with the sanctifying water of God's judgment. So the waters rose. In verse 20, we find they go above the tallest mountains. Everything that was left on the earth died, verse 22. All the living creatures, man to animals to creeping things and, and to birds of the sky, Verse 23, they were blotted out. Now there is a stark contrast at the end of verse 23. At the end of verse 23, it says, And only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark. Talk about isolation. This huge earth that we have, everything's dead on the earth, but Noah and his family on an ark that's 500 feet long and 50 feet high. Stark contrast. That's isolation. A family with over a thousand animals on the ark had to endure quite a bit of jostling and thrusting, moving back and forth, lots of uh, waves, the sounds of lightning, uh, thunder, rainfall, 
What an interesting experience. And everything on the earth was dead. Verse 24, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Four times in this text, we're told about the death of the animals and mankind with different verbs that are used to describe it. That the point is, nothing outside the ark survived. Not a local flood, a global flood. Nothing outside of it survived. That's the theological point here. Because nothing outside of Christ survives either. Timeline for you. Seven days for the flood to begin. Seven days for loading the ark. This is working through chapter 7 and into 8. Forty days of rain. Forty days of deluge. And then 150 days of floodwaters. 150 days for floodwaters to recede. Forty days before sending out the raven. Seven days later, sending out a dove. Seven days later after that, sending out the dove again. A total of 361 days or depending on the seven-day thing there at the end, 368 days, basically one year. The whole process, start to finish, one whole year. So how shall we then live? Noah's calling required him to be fastidious, meaning Noah had lots of particulars and details to keep track of. He needed to be someone who could pay attention to detail. He needed to develop blueprints. He had to tell his family, this is what we're building, and here's the specs. This is how this goes. He needed to allocate resources. Imagine the resources necessary for this, the amount of wood required, um, having the pitch necessary to waterproof the vessel. Noah had to organize all of those resources, all of those assets, and he needed to achieve some level of practical project management. OSHA wasn't around yet. So hard hats probably didn't exist. But the demand here was high. Think of this economically speaking. The demand here was high, but the odd thing was there was no market for building an ark. No one's buying this. There's no market for it. Why would anyone do such a thing, especially something that's so large and impractical? Family of five, it'll fit you all, guaranteed, right? Sort of like oceanfront property in there's no ocean to be found. And it's not like Noah could sell this either. Lots of resources, lots of capital, lots of time, lots of energy, and he's not selling it. Again, economically speaking, it was a total waste of capital. He had no means of recouping any sort of finances because in the end it was a total loss. But that was the plan all along. Despite the financial loss, Noah's work would ultimately be irreplaceable. He would be irreplaceable. You see, Noah was a man called by God to save the world. That was his task. And Noah was intransigent about it. He was stubborn about it. He was insistent about it. He couldn't be convinced otherwise. He was determined to obey Yahweh God no matter the cost. A lesson in and of itself. Are you determined to obey God no matter the cost? God's wrath had reached a limit the only recourse would be to remake the world. In order to do that, God, whose redemptive plan always includes a remnant, had to elect Noah in order to get to Christ, because Christ is in the loins of Noah. And the plan is always Christ. Everything else is, is part of the story. So Christ is the plan here, and the plan is always Christ. 
Now, curiously enough, there's a lot of overlap here, and I want you to see the connections here, and, and there's a reason for it. But there's a lot of overlap with Adam, Noah, and Israel. And we see this pop up often in the Bible. Consider these six things, all right? The first is election. Adam was chosen from the creatures, distinct from all the animals. Noah was chosen from all of humanity. And guess what? Israel was chosen and elected from all the nations. Second thing in common they have is the mention of the deep. They have in common the mention of the deep. At, at creation, there's this talk of the deep. At, during the flood, there's the talk of the deep coming up. And then, of course, when Israel passed through the Red Sea, it was as if they had passed through the deep. Also, the dry land, number three, the dry land. At creation and day two, there's dry land distinguished from the waters. Um, obviously, at, after the flood, the dry land comes back. And at the Red Sea, you'll remember that the people of God crossed through the Red Sea on dry land as the deeps were opened up. Um, and the point is, is dry land is for the people of God. Fourth, commands. Adam was told what to eat and what not to eat. Noah was instructed and given clear instructions and commands about what to build. And Israel was given the Torah. Be fruitful and multiply, make yourself an ark, walk before me and be blameless. God, when he makes a covenant, has commands with it. Number five, there's this path to Eden. There's a path to Eden. The Eden thing keeps coming up. Um, having worked six days, Adam enjoys Sabbath in the Garden of Eden. Um, Noah escapes the flood judgment, and what does he do afterwards? He enjoys the fruit of the vineyard, an echo of Eden. And Israel left the Red Sea, and 40 years later they went into the Promised Land, which was a new Eden. Six, God prepares Eden. Adam sees God plant, plant the garden. God shows him horticulture, shows him how to till, how to pull weeds, how to do all these things, right, to make it beautiful. Um, Adam, Adam sees that. Noah himself learns and says, yeah, Adam's plant vineyards. We do that, so he plants a vineyard. But Israel, the, for Israel, the promised land is a delight, it says in the Bible. It's a delight. It's something that resembles Eden. So you have this theme where man's calling on the earth is connected to how God deals with the earth, which is an important connection. There's also a lot of overlap with Adam's Eden and Noah's Eden. So think, think, think with me here. First, God blessed the animals with Adam. Remember, Adam names them. But God also blesses the animals with Noah because they come on the ark as well. Two, being fruitful and multiplying happens for Adam and for Noah. God says the same thing to Noah that he had said to Adam. Number three, God made a covenant with Adam just like he made a covenant with Noah. And the covenant stuff comes in the next section that we'll get to in a couple weeks. Fourth, there are three sons of Adam, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Here with Noah, we have three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Fifth, Adam worked the ground, as did Noah, in both building the ark and building a vineyard. Sixth, both Adam and Noah fell into sin by partaking of forbidden fruit. You remember that Noah gets drunk with wine, which is a sin. Verse, uh, the seventh thing, Adam and Noah were both exposed by nakedness. Interesting passage with Ham. We'll get to that. Eighth, Adam and Noah were covered after the exposure. Remember, Adam and Eve were given loincloths, and Noah is said to be covered as well. 
Um, one of the more difficult texts of Scripture. It's right up there with some other passages, but we'll, we'll come to it. Uh, ninthly, Adam and Noah offered sacrifice to God. There's similarity there. Tenth, Adam, Adam was given the covenant sign of the tree of life. Noah is given the rainbow. And lastly, oh, sorry, 11 and then 12. For 11, there's eschatological and worldwide significance for both men. When Adam sinned, he plunged the world into darkness. But when Noah was obedient, he brought salvation to the world. There's significance for that. And lastly, number 12, creation gave way to blessing in both scenarios. Noah is Adam. Noah is Adam. That's the point that we're supposed to see. And Adam is humanity. And therefore, Noah is humanity. He's the one who brings humanity to its salvation and deliverance. Now, the reason I mention this aspect of biblical theology is because Jesus, Jesus is a type of Noah. He's a type of Noah as well as a type of the ark. Like Noah, Jesus was called to redeem the world. Both men were Adams in the flesh. Both men were Adams in their calling. The difference for Jesus being, of course, the hypostatic union. Jesus has two natures, God and man. But both men were mediators. Noah was a mediator and Jesus is a mediator. Covenant members together called to covenant faithfulness. Jesus, like Noah, was in the swirling clutches of death. Both men were delivered from death. Noah, of course, in escaping in the ark. And Jesus in being brought through the other side of the grave in the resurrection. Both men were surrounded by wickedness and iniquity. Jesus is Noah, but he is also the ark. Those who, climbed aboard, who climb aboard Christ by faith are delivered by the waters of baptism for the sake of salvation. See that connection? Jesus is Noah, but he's also the ark. Those who climb aboard Christ by faith are delivered by the waters of baptism for the sake of salvation. Instead of filling the world with righteousness, sinful men will fill the world with evil. That's what they do. And that requires a new creation order. Jesus is that final new creation order. His redemption is the only way to be saved. His redemption is the only way for the world to see blessing and fruitfulness and righteousness and true justice. The flood, then, serves the purpose of God's, God's kingdom. The flood served the purpose of God's kingdom. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it's important to know that judgment for unbelief is, is damnation. Judgment for unbelief is damnation. But judgment for the faithful who plead the blood of Christ, judgment is deliverance. All right? There is a distinction to be made. God is, is always gracious in giving men time to repent. And it's just... It's a noose that he keeps giving rope to. And we, he gives us time to repent. And we in America, we're filling up that wrath quickly. But he's given us time to repent. He is gracious in that. But as indicated in the flood, all of creation would suffer, including the animals. All living creatures eliminated in judgment, except for the ones who were delivered. Thus, judgment, we see, is an occasion for both squashing evil and granting salvation. That is what judgment is. And we learn that God does not abandon the works of his hands. He graciously makes a covenant with man. He did with Noah. And he, he graciously allows men to continue in existence in perpetuity. But why? Why would God do that? 
Well, because Christ must come to redeem the world. Could God have just wiped everyone out, including Noah, and been just in doing so? Yes, because he could have raised Noah from the dead and he would have eternal life. And the rest would be eternally damned. And that would be just because the wages of sin is death. But that's not why, that's not how God works. And that's not why he did it this way either. Because Christ is supposed to come to redeem the world. Jesus himself is to take on flesh and redeem the world. And in order to be saved, judgment must occur. So it's not a question of judgment or no judgment. It's always judgment because God is just. So judgment is going to come and it is coming and it must occur. And that is what the cross of Christ is for the believer. The cross of Christ is a judgment against sin. And you either pay for that in hell or you pay for it with the cross. Those are the options. His death is our death. His judgment on the cross is our judgment as well. Now, I want to I shift gears a little bit. And I want to spend the last bit of our time talking about animals. This is an often overlooked aspect of Christian theology. Um, it's just not, not many pastors preach on it. Not many people talk about it, but here we are. And, uh, and it's certainly something that I've, you know, always considered and believed, but I think I've never really paid any attention to it until more recently. Um, and I think it's mostly because we like, in, in church, we like to talk about abstract things like predestination and systematic theology, you know. We get really excited about the secret things that belong to the Lord. Um, but I think that's a mistake. And we will look more closely at what happens after the flood next time, like I said, in a couple weeks. But for now, I, wanna, I want you to take note here that the animals are a part of the deliverance here. It wasn't just Noah and his family that climbed aboard the ark. God had animals climb aboard the ark as well. And animals were a part of the deliverance of the flood, but my conviction, and I think Scripture bears this out, is that animals are also part of Christ's deliverance. Some of the animals were judged, um, not because of their sin, right? Animals don't sin, but they share in man's curse. They share in man's curse. But some of the animals were delivered, and they share in man's salvation, all right? And this is because animals are bound up with man's destiny. Animals are uniquely tied in the created order to man. And they were subject to sin, not because they sinned, but because man sinned. And so God had destroyed mankind on the earth in the flood. Animals were included, but some were preserved. The kinds were preserved who would eventually go on to multiply in, in all of that. Now... And I want to make sure you understand this point, because this is, it is important. Man is the one who sinned, not the animals. In the garden, it was man who sinned. Man broke covenant, not the animals. And the fate of man is connected to the fate of animals. And animals, we can say, are simply casualties of war, but they're casualties of man's war against God. That's the casualty of war. They're, they're, a ca they're bystanders. They're, they're casualties of man's war against God. But God does love his animal creation. All right? So if you have, you have pets at home and you love them, that's a good thing. You should love them because God loves them. In fact, we're told in Psalm 145, verse 9, Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all his works. And man is supposed to love animals as well. 
A righteous man knows the value of the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Proverbs 12, verse 10. Now, animals teach us about the world and about ourselves. Animals teach us about the world, and they teach us about who we are as well. For example, in Job 12, verse 7. But now ask the beasts, and let them instruct you, and the birds of the sky, and let them tell you. Taking dominion over the animals means stewarding them well, and not exploiting them with malice. Proverbs 6 tells us to consider the ant and its work habits. Um, Proverbs 30 tells us to consider the eagle and the snake. And even that terrible demon creature spider that I saw. We are supposed to interact with God's beautiful creation, including the animals, and learn important lessons as they relate to God. Listen to Isaiah 1, verse 3. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not perceive. We're supposed to look at an animal who knows its owner and know God like that. Animals have the breath of life, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. They are animated by a sensorial spirit, but obviously they are not made in the image of God. Animals are distinct from humans, but they still have this breath of life. They are not capable of logic. Animals do not develop culture. They don't develop languages. They don't get together and translate the Bible, you know, into foreign languages. Think of this, like, philosophically. They don't function as subjects of sociological development or economics. They are, they are not subjects capable of art or law, um, though I suppose you could give your cat a paintbrush and see what happens. They are not capable of ethics and faith in the same way humans are, obviously, but they are objects of those things. And this is what makes them different than, than man. They are, in fact, different than man, but yet God saved them on the ark. Have you thought of that? And it's not just meant to be like a cute picture that you color at home in a coloring book. Oh yeah, this giraffe's neck sticking out the top. Probably wasn't sticking out the top. But in the kids' picture books, definitely was. Animals were saved in the ark. And have you thought about that before? And it's my understanding of the scriptures that leads me to believe that I do think animals have eternal life. First, I'll give you the reasons why. First, Christ is a better ark in that his salvation extends to the entire world. His, he's a better ark. The ark was for eight human souls and a thousand plus animals. Christ is for billions of humans and all the animals. Stated differently, it is Christ. He is our ark salvation and he saves all things. Second, in Romans chapter 8, the creation groans, speaking of everything but mankind, though mankind certainly groans, because mankind did the sinning. Creation was subject to fertility, but not willingly. Man was the one who created the sin problem, and thus the earth re was reaping those rewards. So creation was subject to the curse unwillingly, including the animals. The creation, again, including animals, was an in innocent bystander to man's rebellion. Third, in the Old Testament, particularly in places like Isaiah 52.10, the salvation of the earth means the whole earth, the inhabitants of the land, as I contend, including animals. Fourth, and this is the nail in the coffin here on this particular argument, 
As 1 Corinthians 15 explains, the corruptible must put on the incorruptible. Animals, too, have a corruptible existence. And as verse 39 says, and I think this is sort of, it's right in our faces in the Bible. uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 39 says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another fish. Animals, I believe, will be raised in the resurrection, too. Now, it's hardly controversial to say that animals, sentient creatures, will be resurrected in the final state of the new heavens and new earth, and that they will populate the heavenly state. We see echoes of that in Isaiah, uh, with the lion and the lamb. There's visual imagery there with animals. But as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, all flesh is seed. All flesh is seed. And since Christ is a better ark, his work too will deliver the entire creation. And that's the power of resurrection. That is the power of Christ's work. And we need to be confident in the power of God's word in creation, in Christ, in the spirit-inspired scriptures, which is all to say, and I'll end here, we must realize the worldwide ramifications of the gospel. When you read the flood story, you need to read the worldwide ramifications of the gospel. Perhaps our lack of understanding it, or perhaps our lack of confidence, is why the world is suffering under the weight of sin. Our task is to preach the gospel to the whole of creation. Mark 16:1 tells us to preach it to all creatures. We are to preach with boldness and confidence, to exhort people to flee from their sins and run into the ark of Christ. The final judgment is coming when all flesh will be raised in the resurrection and man will be judged. But what will they say? What will you say? Who will man trust? If it isn't Christ, the ark of our salvation, then it will be burned up and it will be sent to hell forever. Christ is in the business of worldwide renewal and anything short of this proclamation is a truncated, phony gospel. The bondage of creation is being curtailed by the preaching of the gospel, so preach we must. Redemption draweth nigh, turn to Christ and be healed. And let me leave you with Jeremiah 32, 27, which reads, Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you the glory for this passage of scripture, I mean, for all of scripture, certainly, but we're delighted to see your care and your concern for the works of your hands. We know the psalmist tells us that you don't abandon those works, so we're thankful for that because you would be entirely just if you did, because we have taken your beautiful creation and we have marred it because of sin. And we are thankful that Jesus Christ has been crowned the King of all, the Lord of all. And we thank you, Jesus, for sitting on the throne right now, putting all your enemies as a footstool. And we pray, Spirit, that you would um, enliven us, that you would give us the grace and the stamina necessary to be resolute like Noah, to be resolute like Christ, who could have abandoned his post but did not. As we enter into... Holy Week and Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, we glorify you as we set our hearts and minds on the reality of your gospel, this good news that you have proclaimed in all creation. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.